Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! (laughs) Hello everybody, this is Annie and... Marcus. G'day, Marcus. How oh, are you? G'day, Annie. Good, thanks. Annie. Yeah, uh, for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, it's the weather's uh, turned good. This is uh, a, a very Australian way of starting a, and Melbourne way of starting a program. But uh, the uh, weather out there is okay. We're ready for a good program. And hopefully everyone's uh, ready with their cocoa to listen. Yeah, we've got a few interesting guests coming on this morning, so it's going to be a good show. Yeah, yeah. So uh, first up, we're going to actually look at what's going on uh, in terms of industrial relations and the uh, uh, group of laws, uh, or actually, it's it's not just laws like the insurer integrity law that uh, Morrison's government's putting forward uh, again. How many times has it been that this uh, a raft of legislation's been brought to the Parliament? Yeah, of course, that's his uh, legislation he? that he wants to introduce that will give the Liberal government the power. To choose who leads our unions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How undemocratic is that? I mean... Yeah. Bizarre. That's our choice. That's our right. We elect who leads us and nobody yeah. else. Union members. It's a membership. We, we elect our leaders, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, I had a chat with Don Sutherland about it. Don used to be the uh, one of the uh, chief negotiators for the AMWU and uh, he has a watching brief on industrial relations in Australia. So we had a chat about this. But uh, what we were talking about in particular was the way this government has decided uh, that uh, it's about time that uh, they looked at the Fair Work Act and the Work Fair Work Commission and uh, do some changes there. Do some tweaking at the Fair Work Commission. <laughs> yeah. oh, I mean, we, we can all see what that's code for, yeah? More, yeah. more cutbacks, more anti-worker legislation, more yeah. anti-union legislation. Also the idea that it wasn't actually, isn't doing enough in, um, in, in the way of what uh, employers would like. Anyway, it's a pretty interesting chat, I thought. And uh, after that, we're going to have uh, some chats with some people that are actually fighting a battle in their own area of work. Yeah, coming up at 8 o'clock, we've got uh, Melanie Coombs, a national organiser from the AWU, from the uh, the hairdressers division of that union, a new division. And uh, they're currently engaged, as are a lot of unions and workers, in a, a battle to protect and maintain penalty rates. 
Yeah, which uh, Monday is the D-Day for the next cut round of cuts to penalty rates. Something like uh, over $500 will be going out of people's pockets over the year from those particular penalty rate cuts. And I guess if you think about it individually, that's a tough gig. But also if you think about it aggregated, all those employers who are no longer pay, paying that amount of uh, uh, money to employees, they'll that will all be slipping in their back pocket. Yes, at a time the lowest paid workers are going to have their pay cut, as you mentioned, through the penalty rates being cut through the uh, Fair Work Commission, their uh, four-yearly review. At the same time, the politicians are going to give themselves a, a pay rise. Yeah, they'll have to so, get I mean, bigger chairs yeah. because their bottoms will be getting too big for the existing chairs at Parliament. But anyway, the fat bums are out. And uh, moving right along, we've got uh, after that, we're going to hear from Kevin. But uh, before we do, we haven't reached our target yet for uh, Radiothon. So uh, if you are thinking of putting some money our way, we'd be grateful. It's not too late to own it. It's not too late to donate It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 Or check our website 3cr.org.au That's right, it's not too late. And uh, there's plenty of things, uh, little bits and pieces. Thanks for all the people who have put a little bit of money towards us. Very grateful, very grateful. It's, it's quite clear that there are people that are listening out there and that we're a good way to start your Saturday morning or, in fact, maybe when you're pedalling along and you're listening to podcasts, we're one of those podcasts that you listen to. But uh, we do need to a little bit more. And uh, we've been thinking uh, that we might actually... Uh, do a panel. We might actually do something out in the big wide world, Marcus. Yeah, as as you said, we haven't reached our target for solidi- solidarity breakfast. So yeah, we've got to yeah come up with an idea to hit the target. So you can keep hearing us on radio each and every Saturday morning on three CR. Yeah, uh, yeah. So a panel discussion maybe. Yeah, that's around right. Current topics, uh, the toxic waste fires, I guess. Yeah, very be... uh, very interesting idea. So in the next few months, maybe in September, we'll be asking you to come down and have a listen to a conversation about what's actually happening in that space. Uh, but before we get on to any of that sort of stuff, let's listen to Don Sutherland about what's going on in the federal sphere. Okay. Well, uh, it's good to be back with you, Annie, and um, the timing is very good because the... Uh the Morrison government, the new right-wing Morrison government, has announced today, it's more formally, its intention to conduct a review of the current Unfair Work Act of 2009. And it, lo and behold, it ticks all of the boxes for the employer organisations. OK, what are they saying? Well, there are four... Uh, there are Sorry, there are five areas and... Uh, not all of the employer organisations are going for all five or public about all five, um, but the, uh, the big ones are these. Uh, and these are probably in order of importance from the point of view of the Australian industry group, which is the most, in my view, the most influential of the employer organisations. So firstly, you have the review of... Uh, how a casual worker should be defined. 
And what the employers are seeking, of course, is that the employer should control the classification of a casual. Uh, so that's the first one. The second area is in regards to enterprise bargaining. Uh, and within the current enterprise bargaining arrangements, there is a thing called the better off overall test. Yes, yes. And what that means is that whenever negotiations are completed for a new enterprise agreement, that agreement is submitted to the Fair Work Commission where a commissioner is required to check it over to make sure that all workers covered all workers covered by the agreement are better off overall relative to the award and the national employment standards. Yes. Yes. Now in the first for the first for some years the commissioners were were extremely slack in favour of the employers, but a couple of legal test cases have forced them into being far more cautious and making sure that the uh, intent of the law, um, such as it is, was applied. And the employers hate that. Yeah, yeah. So but what's the they, next one? They, they re- redefine that as being excessive red tape regulation. Yeah, 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 yeah. The third one is the what is called, quite somewhat ludicrously, the Ensuring Integrity Bill. And this has an indirect impact upon all workers, but is primarily targeted at unions, especially unions that are serious about uh, winning uh, claims for workers, whether they're pursued at a, a workplace or an industry uh, level or even beyond. And uh, the, the purpose of that, of course, is to find uh, the odd example here and there of uh, a union official's misbehaviour and then elevate that into a sort of thing that says that the whole of the union movement is therefore corrupt and therefore the, uh, the regulation of unions should be made more severe. So this is sort of red tape regulation that is OK and stacked against the effectiveness of unions. And also that uh, even though this is, uh, unions are a member organisation, that uh, uh, the government or employers should be allowed to decide who the leadership of the uh, unions are. Yes, that includes that. So uh, not just governments and employers, but anyone, the, the phrase is anyone with sufficient interest. Oh, that's just outrageous. Yes, so that could be, for example, uh, a worker who was aggrieved, uh, who's not even a union member, but who was covered by an agreement and who might say, well, the union didn't work hard enough to make sure that every worker, not just union members, uh, did the, you know, they didn't work hard enough and they behaved in a corrupt way, they didn't include us in decision making. And that would be enough to trigger an investigation into the union and then possibly sanctions of some form against the union. And so, so is this the same kind of thing that could be done to a, an employer organisation, for example? No, it can't. No. Surprise, surprise. So what's the next one? Uh, well, the next two, I'm not sure, are pursued by all unions, all employer organisations, I mean to say, but they certainly would not be opposed. But some, the AIG are very big on um, uh, changing the law so that the already very, very restrictive rights of uh, workers to have access to a union official on the job, um, they become uh, more heavily regulated against those workers. So they can do whatever they like. What's AIG stand for? The Australian... The Australian Industry Group. Oh, right, OK. But yep. they, they are, the, in my view, they are the most, um, if you 
like they they run the most useful uh, uh, information about what the employers are thinking, and they're perhaps arguably the most sophisticated of the activist employer organisations. Okay, and what's the next, the last one? Uh, the last one is that the employer, the Australian Industry Group is very keen uh, to prevent. Uh, those uh, a portion of redundancy uh, entitlements that are returned to unions because they've negotiated them and have required a certain amount of expenditure of union funds, but they're negotiated for all workers covered by the union, not just union members. They want to get their hands on that money. Oh. So, so now that greedy. one, I think, uh, I've, to, be, to be honest with you, I haven't fully got my head around all of that. Perhaps we could talk about that in more detail at another time, or you might have a Melbourne-based commentator who can give your listeners a lot more information about that one. Now, of course, it's uh, cruising to July the 1st, and uh, the penalty rates are going to be cut again. Uh, You were saying that a new report out has been investigating the actual outcomes to the economy of the slash-and-burn approach. Yes. um, The... Uh, uh, Jim Stanford at the uh, Centre uh, for Future Work has some, done some analysis of what uh, of the impact of um, wage constraints imposed upon workers in various ways, what impact that has on uh, the economy generally. And it comes to some billions of dollars, something like 11 billions of dollars uh, could go back into the economy in pretty immediate spending if the penalty rates, for example, uh, penalty rate cuts were reversed and if there were better improvements in the annual uh, minimum wage. So they work, he works out, for example, uh, and, and, and of course the important thing is that on July, July the 1st, the next round, the second to last round of cuts to the penalty rates in the retail and accommodation and food and beverage industries swing into effect. But what he has worked out is that over the Easter and Anzac period, uh, that in the retail industry, workers lost about uh, uh, $890 million equivalent over the whole year. Say that again. $890 million lost to workers in the retail sector and in the accommodation food and beverage sector 345 uh, millions nearly lost and the total being um, you know nearly one and a quarter million uh, uh, dollars now this yeah yeah now this government yeah now this government has had is on record as saying that all these cuts to people's ra- uh, penalty rates is going to have this wondrous effect on the economy of creating more jobs and uh, it, won't, it will be a forward step, not a backward step. Is there yeah. any sign of that? No, there is, there is no significant impact at all. And there's been other research that I'm not recalling exactly right now which has revealed that. It may also have been done by uh, Jim Stanford and his mates at the um, Australian Centre for Future Work. Now, if there hasn't been a big positive step forward, has there been any signs of a step backwards? Well, of course it's a step backwards uh, for 
for workers in those in those particular sectors, and uh, the, uh, the then, then of course you have uh, the annual wage review decision, which the Australian Industry Group itself is saying quite correctly that where the Fair Work Commission basically accepted in substance, not in absolute detail, but in substance, it accepted the Australian Industry Group position on what should happen in the annual wage review rather than that being brought forward, the position, the proposal being brought forward by the Australian Council of Trade Unions on behalf of all low-paid workers. So we have... That's what's going on on July the 1st is the introduction of new penalty rate cuts, which is therefore a lot of workers are going to see a cut in their pay in those two sectors. Uh, then, of course, there is the very, very, uh, the, the quite small increase in the uh, in the minimum rates, uh, the uh, national minimum rate, and then the minimum rates in all of the 123 or 124 awards, depending on what your classification is. So, those people who are going to uh, get those that slight increase, that increase. Uh, are also the same people who are possibly going to be losing the penalty rates. Yeah, if they're in the retail sector yeah. uh, or food and beverage sectors, yes. Hospitality, yeah. food and beverage, yes. If they're in those sectors, what they, what gain they make, whatever it is, in regard to their minimum rate coming from the annual wage review, they lose at least some of it through the cuts to uh, the penalty rates. So the it's sort of anti-intuitive, really, like... They not only lose on the bends, but they lose on the straights. Yes. <laughs> and and just for the record, um, Sally McManus, on behalf of all workers, has written to the Morrison government just in the last 24 hours yeah. saying, you know, if the, if the evidence is now very clear, including from the Reserve Bank governor of all people, uh, that wage constraints are now a factor in taking the economy closer towards recession and therefore proposing that the government act to reverse the penalty rates, which it can do of its own volition if it wishes to, although it will, it will not wish to, uh, and uh, to do something more proactive about the, uh, the minimum rates in, for all workers in both uh, the, the national minimum rate and in the award minimum. Now, interestingly enough, the uh, Morrison government rag, the Australian, has been absolutely falling all over itself for a number of, uh, for a week or so, uh, and some of the mainstream uh, so-called news outlets are in tandem around trying to make out that uh, the Morrison uh, behaviour against Turnbull wasn't as uh, uh, Machiavellian as it was made out. Do you think this is because they're not only diverting people's attention from the reality of people's uh, economic downturn, but trying to get their liberal brethren to go back into the fold? Um, well, the... the Despite its re-election, the Morrison government does not have a uh, it does not have a formal mandate for a lot of the things that it wants to do in regards to 
the environment and climate change and also in regards to workplace and industrial relations. So its credibility in these areas is not yet strong. And so all of the mainstream media, all of them, not just the Australian, are in the main trying to create a storyline that legitimises what the government wants to do. Now, remember, during the election campaign, the primary message from the government, the only positive message, if you could call it this, and it was a lie anyway, was that they were good economic managers. Yeah, what a lie. They, they did not put forward any, uh, any serious economic program. Uh, and therefore, their credibility is not strong enough to be able to pursue all the things that big business wants. And so what's going on in mainstream media in particular is the creation of a storyline to give them credibility. That's right. To do these right-wing radical things. Um, So, uh, and and that's going to, therefore, that particularly forms the backdrop to the strategy that the government is using relative to the changes to the Fair Work Act review that they're now going to do. So uh, what you have are two things going on. In the Australian Financial Review, the way it works is pretty well like this. The Australian Financial Review is the, if you like, the articulate and more detailed and elaborate laying out about what big business wants from the government in a number of areas, but particularly in regards to workplace and industrial relations and also in regards to the environment. So the Australian Financial Review lays out the more fulsome argument. Its message is that in regard to workplace and industrial relations, tinkering with it all is not enough. There has to be a radical rewrite and where they want to eventually land in the next couple of years is the re-emergence of work choices in a new name that is has a benign name. That's where they want to be. That's their strategy. The government comes out, however, and in its review today, says that what it says that fundamentally the Fair Work Act is okay, but it only needs a review that looks at fine-tuning it. That must be mean that it's really bad. Yeah. Well, what it really <laughs> means is the government is actually agreeing that they want to go for more radical change, but they're never going to talk about it like that. That's exactly right. So in, in the media cover, the media release from Christian Porter, the Attorney General, who's also responsible for workplace and industrial relations, there's a big tick to all all of the AIG demands. Yeah. Right? So, but it's all pitched as though only fine-tuning will be required, and this time they are saying it'll take six to nine months to review, and he's saying, and this is an outright lie, it will be evidence-based. Now, the purpose of all of that sort of language is to ensure that, that people are seduced into a way of thinking that what's going on is not really that radical. We're not ever going to have work choices again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, this other great lie, which is that they're uh, governing for everyone. Yes. 
I mean, and it's so, such a great light, a great big light, and not to mention that I hope all those people that voted them back in, all those working class people that voted them back in, are prepared for the insult that they're going to uh, uh, throw all over them as well as everyone else. Yes, well, uh, every every worker, including those who may have been seduced in voting for them because of the scare campaign around um, uh, the nonsense about the death taxes, as they're called, or inheritance taxes, and so on. All, uh, all of those people, they will have, there will be flow-on effects into their pay packet. Oh, yes, and now, not to mention the they'll lose their family home just as fast because yes. this government has been has all family homes in their sites and have for the entire time that they've been in government? Well, well, amongst genuine workers who produce value, there are a significant number of workers in the mining industry who in nominal terms uh, have uh, quite high wages relative yeah, to other right. workers, say, in those areas who are having their penalty rates attacked. But the rate of exploitation of those workers. So let's think in terms of workers whose hours of work, fly in, fly in, fly in, fly out penalties at, at the market rates and so on, even where there's no union agreements and so on. Let's look at those people, 150,000, 160, 140,000 a year. The rate of exploitation is actually extremely high. Yep. That yep. is the rate of profit extracted out of the total value produced by those workers relative to their wages is extremely high. They are highly exploited. So there will be flow and effects back into their wages and conditions from the attacks on workers who are at 90,000, 80, 70, 60, and then even lower. All, whatever happens at any level of wages has implications for workers at other levels of wages. And that will become apparent uh, as over the next three years if this government gets away with the strategy that it is pursuing. Okay. Which that's... sort of takes us to, you know, what do we do about it? Yeah, it does. And actually the next time we talk, do you think we could talk about that? Yes, because it means a redefining of the Change the Rules campaign. Yeah, that's right. And it, and in key words, to finish up with, we can, we can elaborate on it next time, is that it must move from changing the rules to actually doing the things that we believe workers should have defined in the law. Yes, that's words, exactly we right. We win the right to strike, we win um, multi-industry bargaining by doing it in defiance. Yeah, stop this pussyfooting around. Well, there's a strategic problem uh, which has to do with union density. Yeah. You can't leave that out of, the, out of any the conversation. consideration of how we go about pursuing a new type of change the rules strategy. Okay. So let's go into the detail as soon as we can, huh? Yeah. Hey, you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website, 3cr.org.au, or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. 
Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the crossroads. Time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Hello, and we're back for Solidarity Breakfast. Now, um, I found that a fairly stimulating conversation with Don Sutherland around what's going on in um, the federal sphere. Also, this uh, crazy business that the mainstream media have been put or putting into operation. It's, uh, the uh, Australian is quite clearly, and all the others, are quite clearly the publicity machine for the LMPs. And uh, they've been uh, throwing around the Mo- Monis- Morrison name and uh, going through this whole narrative around how uh, the uh, toppling of Turnbull wasn't, didn't prove them to be uh, uh, scumbags uh, at all. They're not scumbags at all. <laughs> but anyway, the, it's a, a sure, uh, you know, slowly but surely, they've all been to media school. They're uh, all doing a creating a narrative, sitting around in the back rooms, trying to work out how they can mould the minds of the Australian people. Anyway, uh, even though Rebecca's not here today, she went off to the uh, Western Saharan event that was held uh, last week. Uh, Marcus, there's been a variety of things going on in the West Sahara, and one of them in particular is similar to what's been going on here around the press, uh, except that it's been more targeted and more violent. A uh, press person there was uh, doing what a press person does, she was reporting on uh, peaceful demonstrators being whacked and uh, arrested, and lo and behold, she gets arrested too. But so, it sounds like what's happening in the ABC here. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't don't you press people do what press people are supposed to do? Oh yeah, you can't can't tell the truth. Uh, supposedly, you know. Anyway, she <laughs> uh, has given us a report, so we'll hear what she's got to say. Uh, just this this week, or maybe it was just last week. Um, yes, just last week. The reporters Without Borders have brought out a really interesting report uh, that's called uh, Western Sahara, a Desert for Journalism, or Journalists, you know, a Desert for Journalists. And uh, they pay a lot of tribute to the team, the media team that we saw in the film uh, for their bravery and uh, their determination to try and get the story out to the world, uh, notwithstanding that they might get um, put in prison or they might be tortured or uh, suffer all kinds of other discrimination and, and difficulties. Um, and the, the young woman, so I think that that might well 
be part of the repercussions of, this, of a film like this that has shown what these people are doing. Uh, and I might also mention that the young woman that you saw, first of all, you don't really see her face. She's writing graffiti on the wall. And then um, she's uh, interviewed. Uh, and she speaks in English, yes. She's, uh, her name is Nazha, Nazha Al-Khalidi. And she is uh, one of the ones who has been arrested. She's been, she's in prison. She's been arrested uh, since, since May, she's been in prison. Her trial has twice been postponed, which is a typical trick of the Moroccans to just be able to keep them in custody for a little bit longer and keep them out of circulation and even if they get acquitted, you know, then at least they, they have the chance to make life pretty nasty and, and um, mistreat them and torture them and so on. Uh, so her, her trial is now due uh, next week on the 24th of, of, of June and um, it will be interesting to see what happens. Last time, uh, five Spanish lawyers who had been sent by their professional organization to observe the trial were expelled from the country. They were tur uh, not uh, turned back at, at the airport. And two Norwegians who were sent by a human rights organization called the Rafter Foundation, they were sent back. So. Um, so Morocco is still very um, uh, sensitive about having international eyes uh, on on the things that they're doing, uh, and so the um, I think that the work of media team was no doubt helped by this kind of film. One of the protagonists um, drew a comparison between Western Sahara and East Timor, um, and pointed out that it was. Portugal's intervention that led to a referendum that led to independence. Is there a similar move to pressure the Spanish government um, to take a similar approach? And what is the current stance of the Spanish government to the whole issue? It's, it's, it's been a problem with Spain from the beginning because no matter what type of government, you know, on the left or on the right, Socialist or the Popular Party, um, they Morocco has uh, some very strong good cards against, to use against Spain. Um, uh, Spain continues to occupy two towns of yeah, Ceuta and Melilla in the north. They um, they have a lot of businesses from Spain invest in in Morocco. There is the issue of the fisheries, which also includes Western Sahara. There is the issue of immigration. There is the issue of drug trafficking, like hashish and others, which come from Morocco. And every time the government tries to do something, the Morocco opens the gates of immigration or of drug trafficking or some parties start calling for the liberation of Ceuta and Melilla and the Spanish government is, is, is very sensitive and very af afraid of these. So this has hampered Spain from taking a, a, an active, positive role in, in the issue. Although the Spain is considered 
in the Security Council as one of the Friends of Western Sahara, so-called Friends Group, which uh, it's, it's a group of countries that are interested in Western Sahara, including France and United States and others. But, yeah, amongst the people, however, uh, there is a huge solidarity movement in Spain. In every town and village, there is a group of support for Western Sahara. They take a lot of the children every summer. It used to be 9,000 or 10,000 Sahrawi kids go to Spain to spend time with fam Spanish families. They send aid, humanitarian assistance, and doctors, and you know. Um, and the Podemos party uh, is taking a very strong stance in supporting, uh, as well as parties in the Basque and in, in, in Catalonia. Uh, a strong movement in the Canary Islands also. Uh, so amongst the people, there is a lot of solidarity, but it's not translated into a position of the government. Uh, so this is, yeah, it has been a problem. Unlike what Portuguese did, uh, the Spanish haven't done that, and that hasn't been very helpful for us, unfortunately. Yeah, so that's the, the position in Spain at the moment. Uh, it's not likely to change, unfortunately. On the back of that question regarding Spain's position, um, what is the position, Spain being a country within inside the European Union um, and being part of a wider community as a whole, uh, what's the European Union's stance on the situation there and how, or how, how are you interpreting their position and how Europe, the European Union as a whole is dealing with the situation in Western Sahara? But the European Union found itself in, the, uh, in a very tricky position. On one way, they like to speak about human rights and legality and international law and democracy and all of these uh, nice things. But um, in the real politic, uh, they like to fish <laughs> in Western Sahara waters. They like to get, you know, products from Western Sahara, like um, agricultural products. Uh, there are some, you know, businesses uh, trying to invest in Western Sahara. And they like the relationship with Morocco, because Morocco is very close. And uh, particularly France, as a former colonial power, uh, takes this issue really seriously. And they consider Morocco as a friend, and they defend the Moroccan position all the time, either in the European Union or in at the United Nations. Different countries take different positions, but in general, uh, what's been happening recently is, uh, is that uh, the, the role of the European uh, Court of Justice, which has issued uh, on multiple occasions uh, decisions which uh, say that uh, the European Union is not legally uh, allowed to uh, deal with resources from Western Sahara. Uh, however, the European Commission uh, tries to circumvent this decision by trying to uh, put it uh, in a way that it, it is beneficial for the population and that they can do it. But um, we have won the you know, cases in the European Court of Justice and there are cases which are currently pending and we are optimistic that we will win them. So, uh, 
Yeah, there is a time when the European Union has to take a decision and find that you know it is better to resolve this issue legally, uh, so you can have um, harmony and good relationships and development of the region and stability and peace, rather than taking a negative decision defending Morocco, uh, you know, uh, in its uh, um, illegal occupation of the Sahara. Yes, I, I was just going to say that Morocco spends a lot of money and attention on lobbying the European Parliament. Uh, there's at least three or four uh, big firms, big lobbying firms that are spending a lot of time going right around all the um, many, many uh, delegates, because there's a, in the expanded uh, European Union with the 28 members, it's there are, are a lot of uh, MEPs um, and, and, and lobbying every other way that they possibly can. So um, it is very hard for the um, Sahrawis to have their case put. Uh, and as, as Kamal says, the temptations are very great to um, to run against the decision of the uh, court, even though it's the highest court in the European Union. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Hey, yes, and that was a report uh, around uh, West Sahara. If you want to catch up with more details about West Sahara, uh, you can listen to Tuesday Drive Time. Jan Bartlett is a, a consistent reporter on what's going on with Sahara. If you don't know very much about it, it's a most bizarre story. Morocco just decided they wanted their land and they sent their people in after they'd been doing a... West Saharans had fought a uh, war against their colonial... Uh, uh, masters in inverted commas they uh, they just won their war and uh, the Moroccans just walked in and took their country and their resources uh, the interesting background to that is that uh, all along that coastline uh, is uh, the uh, access to a uh, large amount of uh, sea uh, resources and uh, the fishing that goes on there is actually the area that supports the uh, food supply to Europe, the um, fish from there goes straight to Europe and uh, there's a lot of turning your eyes to the left so that you don't notice what's going on in West Sahara. Very interesting story and it's repeated across the world, uh, including West uh, Papua. We've got a news, another story coming up now on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR. Yeah, uh, this morning on the line we're joined by uh, Melanie Coombs, who's a national organiser with the Australian Workers' Union. Uh, thanks for joining us on today's program, Melanie. Oh, that's all right. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so uh, firstly, you're part of the AWU is uh, relatively new. So, I mean, would you like to talk about how and why uh, your part of the union was formed in what's traditionally been a male-dominated labouring union? Yeah, it's interesting. I thought, oh, hairdressing. Yeah, well, so, you know, everyone knows, you know, the hair and beauty industry. We are still, you know, blue-collared workers, but we are a, um, you know, a female-dominated industry that is highly exploited. So um, it's time to sort of bend all the 
strong women together and, you know, start to get some respect back in our trade. That's um, pretty much the root to it all, which is what we're aiming towards throughout all Australia. You know, unionising all of these um, young women to come together to, you know, make a stand and make a change. Yeah, and your trade is uh, one that's not uh, traditionally been unionised. Um, has the recruitment and the education organising of uh, your members been a challenge at all? Or? Um, look, it isn't. It isn't like the traditional, you know, organising role with, um, you know, your big factories and your CEOs and everything like that. You know, so a lot of hairdressing and um, you know beauty studios are predominantly um, like small businesses. So you know, you're working right beside you know the salon owner the manager that's right next to you and things like that. So we're uh, working towards work with the employer and the employees just to, you know, educate around um, bringing respect in the industry, um, educating, you know, around, like, adequate adequate training and things like that, and also educating these young women that don't know much about their rights and entitlements in their trade. So just to build them up with that... um, build them up with that education and that knowledge around, you know, where they stand in the industry, just so they can have a bit more confidence in where they and where they stand and, you know, if anything goes wrong, you know, around, like, their penalty rates, superannuation, um, bullying and harassment issues, which is um, what makes, you know, a lot of the churn rate in the industry as well. Okay, so currently the Fair Work Commission is uh, conducting their four-yearly uh, review of awards and your union is conducting a campaign uh, to protect penalty rates. Uh, yes, so um, Hair South Australia um, are running a cut cert campaign um, around our penalty rates um, with the hearing in August. So um, what we're doing is we're you know educating a lot of um, these young men and women that their penalty rates are going to be reduced on public holiday- holidays and on Sundays. Um, and with my knowledge and you know and my conversation, you know, because I'm a hairdresser myself in the industry, having you know tech chatting to you know my ambassadors I have all through Australia and fellow. Um, hairdressers, you know, they, they didn't really have the knowledge behind them that they're actually going to get cut and inspiring line, just like hospitality and retail. So, you know, banding everyone together to bring that knowledge. You know, there's a lot of hairdressers and beauticians out there and, you know, once we get together, we're pretty powerful in numbers, so we're going to make a bit, a bit of noise. <laughs> Would there be any chance of uh, mass industrial action from the, the hairdressers to protect the penalty rates and address the other issues in the industry? Um, look, we have a lot of ongoing issues in the industry, but um, at the moment we are um, concentrating on um, the penalty rates case because the hearing is in August. Um, we do, um, you know, we did organise a rally back in um, March where we had some issues go- going on because the hearing got moved to August. But um, yes, we will have um, something around the corner coming up in August um, around the penalty rates cut case. Okay. And just as the Liberal government prepares to slash penalty rates of the lowest paid workers, the politicians themselves are, re- are rewarding themselves with a pay increase. I mean, what, what would your message to the politicians be? You know, my message to the politicians would be, you know, um, we need a living wage because at the moment, you know, with, with our trade and our experience and all our training, we go through TAFE and we get our qualifications and our certificate three, and our wage goes up, what, $2? So it goes from, like, $21 to $22.04 an hour as soon as you get qualified, and that's not much of a pay rise at all. And with the, you know, with the price of um, rent and, you know, mortgages or, you know, childcare these days, it's, it's going to get quite difficult for hairdressers and beauticians. Like, it's going to get absolutely ridiculously difficult. And um, to the politicians, you know, that, that's just not fair. <laughs> it's not fair at all. You know, they need to think of the working people. I'll have, know, to, I'll have to I'll have to say that your particular industry is quite uh, right at the uh, the nub of all this because a lot of the people that are working in your or industry are working for private enterprise, so small businesses, right? 
And yes. yeah, and it's very up close. Like you said, the person who owns the business might be beside the person doing the cutting. And from my impression is that quite a few people who work in your industry have incredibly long hours, and uh, it's uh, very, uh, it's quite grueling. Yeah, you know, yeah, especially around Christmas time in the hair and beauty industry, um, you can work up to twelve to fourteen hours of a day. You know, um, to like weeks, weeks on end, um, just to get those clients in around Christmas time to make make them happy and get their hair done. You know, when sometimes you push yourself last and you cancel your lunch break out and you don't end up eating or. You know, those things happen because a lot of hairdressers and beauticians, you know, our career is to make someone um, feel comfortable and feel happy. So we tend to push ourselves last just to make them feel, um, you know, happy within the presence of being in the salon because that, that's what, you know, that's what clients do. They come into a salon and they come into it like, you know, a beauty therapy place just to, you know, relax and have some downtime. So we take on a lot of their baggage and we sort of put out, push our own needs aside just to make them happy, which... which as women in a, in a female-dominated industry tend to do these days as well. And the other thing that I think that uh, gives a bit of a an eye-opener to your industry is that there are actually quite a few health... Uh, uh, health and safety issues, like even the particles of the hair can be a, a lung issue and as well as the chemicals, I'm assuming. Uh, yes, um, you know, because, the, you know, the fibres of the hair can get, you know, quite small when you're doing your clipper cuts and things like that. Um, and also, you know, not being in a well-ventilated area, like in your Westfields and malls and things like that, dealing with formaldehyde in your... Um, smoothing keratin smoothing treatments or your ammonia in colouring and things like that, it can get quite um it, it is very quite quite toxic on the, you know, on your lungs and things like that. Um and from out and from out of hide can get quite um you know, messy with myself. I ended up getting allergic conjunctivitis back when I was hairdressing doing um keratin complex treatment through from out of hide. And they've actually um proven that yeah, it um causes cancer. So they've had to actually go out there and um, you know, take back all of the keratin complex treatments that have got the formaldehyde in it because it's, it's quite deadly to hairdressers in a non-ventilated area. And uh, your union is also involved in a campaign to have your uh, trade recognised through licensing because, as you've mentioned, uh, chemistry, maths are part of the job. Well, that's it. You know, we're, we're not I really, you know, a lot of people sort of see us as a trade and, you know, we, we go and do a chemical and science exam so we know all the chemistry behind all of these chemicals that we deal with and, you know, um, they, they can get quite um, corrosive and quite... Um, quite dangerous, especially if you don't know what you're mixing together, which is um, quite a concern. Alongside as, um, with your cutting as well, that's a lot of um, geometrical um, you know, ge- geometries you as well and your angles and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of mathematics to it and your ratios and your mixing colours. So there, there is a lot to it. Um, so we really need to be out there to identify, yes, we are a trade. Yes, we go through our training and our qualifications. And we go through all of these, um, you know, geography, um, not geography, um, geometry exams and um, our chemical and science exams. So we know how to work with these colours so they're not going to be dangerous when we're applying them to your scalp, um, which is quite, you know, um, unsettling when we do have people that aren't qualified out there or aren't registered dealing with these um, very corrosive chemicals. All right, thanks for uh, get, uh, talking to us this morning and, uh, yeah, uh, talking to our listeners about all the issues facing hairdressers and the fight to protect penalty rates and the fight to have your trade uh, recognised. So thanks for joining us, Melanie. That's all right. Thank you very much for having me. And good luck. It's on again. Get along to the old concrete gang and your radio fun pull-up for 3CR Radio, Monday, July the 8th, 
11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry, and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around, and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then. Team Lister win as the US of the UN of the US of the world plans to strangle further evil Iran economically. Top marks to the other European parties to the agreement for their courage in pointing out to big supremo Donald Trample the poor that Iran has abided by the agreement. By demanding evil Iran behave itself and stop upsetting Donald and his advisor on trained killing and slaughter John Belton. But thankfully, they, the US of and the other parties, all have good peace-loving nuclear weapons of mass destruction they can use to prevent evil Iran developing evil war-loving nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you haven't thought of no one having nuclear weapons of, uh, for God's sake, we are people of peace. We have a responsibility to maintain the peace. The US of's unflinching commitment to world peace reflected also in big supremo Donald's son-in-law Jared Curse the Arabs plan for peace in the Middle East. And what common sense, what a brilliant idea, what better way to achieve peace than to hold a regional conference on peace between good, good, liberty, freedom and democracy, love and Zion and evil, evil Palestinian non-state non-people without either party being present. The non-state non-people not being present and Zion realising there's no need to be present because Jared on behalf of the USO will represent its interests absolutely. Jared offering billions to the evil Palestinian non-people to allow them to continue being occupied and stateless. Uh, this is your idea, Jared, so the USO will provide the billions? Well, no, no, we, we quite properly expect the other countries in the Middle East to cough up the cash, but we are proud to have thought up the idea. It shows our sincere quest for peace. And Jared and his father-in-law expressed their anger at the non-state non-people for rejecting the fabulous offer and saying they actually wanted a country. When Jared and Donald pointed out, you can't just give people a country and throw out the existing population. And all this showed how the non-people are not sincere in seeking peace, like the US of and Zion are sincere, which is true, of course, in one sense. On Donald, as yet another woman claims he sexually assaulted her, he rebutted her claim by declaring she wasn't his type. So obviously, Donald only assaults women who are his type. Mentioned the courage of the other signatories to the Iran agreement, and courage was running riot this week. We have to admire the Socialist Party for having the courage to abandon its pretense of supporting the underprivileged and realising its chances of becoming the government so it can abandon the underprivileged is to adopt the filthy rich, exemplified by shadowy economic guru Jim Chalmers the Rich. Well, let's test the case for the abandonment. The only way that scuttled them more less son can pay for his plan to give tax cuts to the big end of town is by making more devastating cuts to hospitals and schools. The central declining feature of his tax cuts are that the lion's share goes to the wealthiest true blue Aussies. Jim got stuck into the government before the election. By the way, hope he knows more about economics than grammar, the noun controlling the verb, but that's my pedantry. 
In Scuttlebeam's Troubler was he, a cancer sufferer will pay more, so that a millionaire or a multinational will pay less. He went on, and... It says everything you need to know about the caring business class party when they're willing to see workers' wages be cut but giving billions at the top end of town an $11,000 a year tax cut and more. But doesn't that highlight the class warfare politics of envy nonsense the Socialist Party went on with? Emphasis upon the went past tense. But thankfully, Jim, like the rest of the Socialist lot, has seen the light. He acknowledged some of the language we used, like the above quotes, was wrong, and now accepts that people earning 200000 plus a year is a good thing. That is a good thing. We want more people doing well as my supremo and would-be big supremo Anthony Albanese now says if you are on a good wicket in this country we say good on you uh, like Gina Jim or Anthony Yora Pratt or Jamie Puker or Lockie Moorcrap good on them they've earned every cent uh, they inherited it good on them Oh yes, doesn't everything point to an exciting policy-free, no-policy policy giving Troubler was he's a real choice at the next election between supporting the filthy rich or supporting the filthy rich? They're displaying all the courage and commitment of former socialist leader, brackets failed, Kim Beesney's back with the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages, and his offsider Peter Root, the workers, beat up the tamper and children overboard lies. Uh, sorry, factual errors. Well, factual mistakes, showing how much more civilised we are than the other paving the way for the bipartisan policy of compassion that has been our no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal-boat-people policy ever since, leaving us to ponder why the Socialist Party bothers to keep trying to prove it's just as cruel and heartless as, or even more cruel and heartless than, the caring business class lot, when they, the caring business class lot, keep building them over their head with it anyway. The Socialists are soft on no-proper-papers illegals. For goodness sake, how much more inhumane do they have to get? So why not just cop the criticism and wait for it, wait for it, I'm about to say something very, very untrue, Blue Aussie, offer a real alternative like arguing refugees and asylum seekers are not illegal and treat them like real people. In other words, just act as a, wait for it again, opposition. Now, I know how we all miss former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why a worker so evil who leapt off the sinking ship before it was righted, but in an interview with her successor, Katie Alienate Workers, Katie told us she was following on the shoulders of giants in Kelly and two Caring Business Class Party Big Supremos and former economic guru Peter Costa Workers, L.O. Bosses, who had held the seat, Grant. Giants, giants. We'd like to see her definition of a non-giant, and she told us the people of her electorate told her she was the ideal person to represent them because she shared their interests and concerns and values. We share our concerns for the massive problems that confront the filthy rich. Filthy rich of the world unite. 
And let's be fair, some of them do need a bit of help. Like in the business that is sport, which used to be sport, a leisure activity, rugby's man of God, Israel Fall. Oh, they sacked me. Sacked from his four million a year job. Is reduced to pleading with lovers of the dear baby Jesus and haters of atheist gays. Well, on the descent into the eternal fires of hell sinners generally to crowdfund his appeal against his sacking, seeking three mil from the lovers of the dear baby. One mil less than his annual salary, not allowing for his sponsorships. And to show how his co-lovers will fall for any old story like the eternal fires of hell, for instance, they've been handing over their hard and not so hard earned to Israel. And although it suffered a bit of a setback Monday, it has now been taken up by the true blue Aussie dear baby Jesus lobby. And Israel has also hired a top end of town PR spin doctor company to assist in the fundraising, which is the main reason I raised this otherwise forgettable item, because out of all that, I reckon the big, bigger winner will be the PR company. Mentioned last week, new caring business class relations minister Christian Potom declared he wants to deregister the evil construction unions and introduce a bill to allow union bosses to be thrown out and unions to be deregistered. But this week, Christian said he would take a conservative approach to industrial reform, leaving us to ponder what he might consider radical. And he would consult with the parties before making the conservative changes. Uh, so you consult with the unions. Let me rephrase that. All relevant parties. And clearly, as the government is urged by caring employers to prioritise caring business class party reform, the big winners will be the lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions, because the sundry chambers of profit screaming for changes tell us their only concern is creating jobs for the ingrates. But as they have been telling us for years, the pendulum has swung far too far toward the workers, and my word, we've all noticed that. And caring employers are being crucified by wages and crippling conditions like health and safety, making it essential as part of the back-to-the-sensible set of reforms to deregister and cast out any evil union which sees its role as representing its members. When Scuttle them and the team, and we assume now Anthony, Jim and the team, no caring employers and ingrate workers had common interests, something the sadly lamented former big supremo nuclear hawk himself knew quite well. And evil union rep union representing their members only maintains the flawed philosophy that class struggle, the politics of envy, still exist. Whereas Anthony and Jim now know there is no big end of town and truly evil unions must be taught a lesson. Finally, therefore, aren't the next three years of caring business class policy and socialist non-policy policy going to be fun, fun, fun? With friends like the Socialist Party, Jim and Anthony, fighting for the underprivileged, for working people, who needs... Oh, I almost said class enemies. Kevin, wash your mouth out. Good morning. Crying, crying. 
Are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website 3 crorgau or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you.
Yeah, that's right, we do. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast. And Marcus, we may or may not hear from the great Jacob Gretsch about uh, Julian Assange. We've been trying to track him down. Hard man to find. But anyway... Uh, we're going to uh, go to something else, which is a piece that I did a while ago with uh, Rob Watts. Now, Rob Watts was talking about uh, Newstart. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, of course, the Fair Go for Pensioners, one of the regulars on our program, are uh, going to be having their big uh, conference. Uh, well, it's a day, a conference. Uh, it's going to be on the 10th of July, and it's going to be at the uh, Greek church at the end of... Oh, the uh, business end of uh, Sydney Road, near Bell Street, near that corner there. And uh, apparently things are going very well. The bookings is, uh, can fit a bit, of, a bit over 100 people. And uh, according to uh, Lou Wheeler, things are going pretty well. And Rob Watts is going to be one of the speakers, I believe. He's a great speaker. Have you ever heard him talk? Yeah, he's on the uh, Unitarian Half Hour, is it, every now and then? He's a yeah, professor yeah. from uh, Melbourne University. No, it's uh, RMIT. RMIT, is it? Yeah, uh, yeah, but it doesn't matter. One so obviously, the... yeah, New Start's one of the, uh, is one of the campaigns, the Fair Go for Pensioners, are campaigning to increase. Yes, that's right. Uh, the uh, One of the new bits of news is that uh, Sydney uh, Council is may or may not, but very close to ratifying the uh, notion that uh, New Start should be uh, increased. Uh, it's one of those campaigns that's been started in uh, South Australia, in Adelaide, to get local councils behind the uh, pressure to uh, say to uh, higher tiers of government that uh, New Start is actually a stumbling block to the welfare of Australian citizens. But anyway, let's hear from Rob Watts. In broad terms, for the normal urban Australian, full employment, backed by the elaborate apparatus of industrial regulation, which included something called the basic wage, which is another idea. Remember that the basic wage was the idea that families had a right to a living wage. It was not one based on any determination of industry's capacity to pay. That little uh, idea would be um, inserted into the conversation nationally uh, whilst Bob Hawke was representing the ACTU in 1969. That would be the first nail in the coffin, if you like, of a certain conception of what a fair society should look like based on a mandated idea about living wages. So the 70s really become a kind of crucial turning point. So we do see the changes beginning in the mid-70s under Whitlam and then, then there's a period of chaos under Fraser and then I think we can say with some certainty now that the neoliberal experiment begins uh, in full force courtesy of a Labor government. And certainly you had a skilled salesman in the form of um, Hawke. You had a, let's say it simply, a compliant Labor movement and you had even people who belonged to the left, Trotskyists, um, people from the Communist Party who decided that Hawke was offering them a brand new order in which they would have a secure place at the seats of power. The, uh, a quick digression, this is not something I'd want to talk about too much, but uh, I remember trying to get Four Corners interested in the, the, the great betrayal that Howe engineered as the leader of the left. In return for uh, a lot of money for his urban program, he was prepared to recommend privatisation. And he did that in 1989. I said to the Four Corners producer, this is the biggest single story in public policy in this country's history. They said, what? What are you talking about? No idea. So 
By 1986, it's apparent that the commitment to full employment has been killed off. No government in Australia will ever again commit to an idea like full employment. That idea is off the agenda. By 87, the OECD has come up with an idea. It's called the active society model. It basically says there's a problem. We are now in an era of permanent long-term unemployment. We can't afford to acknowledge this too openly. This is a discussion that Howe attends uh, at Brussels, uh, in Paris, sorry, in uh, 86, uh, late 86, and he brings back his, I've discovered a new truth, to Melbourne in eight, early 87. Um, so we're not going to be able to return to full employment ever because the market won't allow that anyway, so you just have to put up with naturally occurring levels of unemployment and inflation. You will need to nonetheless do something, and that is to not let the unemployed lose their morale. You'll need to keep their morale up by keeping them active. And this idea is then fed through to the formal process of policy review which uh, the Hawke-Keating government initiated in 87, the, the so-called CAS Social Security Review, which had run for nearly three years under Professor Bettina Cass. And this would lead to the first uh, major review and uh, overhaul of the uh, Australian social security system since it was formed back in the mid-40s. Here we see the magical transformation of the problem of unemployment into the problem of the unemployed. The unemployed become the problem. It's their deficits that will become the focus of program after program. It's their lack of experience, it's their lack of stickativity, of um, resilience, uh, financial capacity, blah 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 blah. And well, whatever, all of everything, the lot. So the problem of unemployment, which if, it, if you accepted it was a problem, then you might expect governments want to do something about it. That could never be allowed to happen. The market was the appropriate uh, mediating device that would fix the problem of unemployment. If it can't fix it, then tough titty. And uh, meanwhile, the problem of the unemployed has to be dealt with because they could become a source of trouble, uh, what we now in the current language category call a source of social incoherence or dissent or a problem of social cohesion in some fashion. So uh, Bettina Cass has given her writing instructions to reform, uh, redesign the social security system. And the result will be what has now become a, a, an alarmingly complex system of increasingly discrete systems of um, benefits, payments, all paid at different levels with all sorts of uh, strange and complicated and arcane rules of access and all the rest of it. That is the accomplishment of the 80s. The CAS review uh, means that we start to see things like the introduction of Newstart and other forms of youth allowance. We see all the arcane elements uh, which are at this point still to be run through what was then um, the Department of Social Security and the old CES. And of course the next stage, which is uh, part of the story that uh, we can attribute to Paul Keating's government, is the beginning of the idea that we need to privatise and outsource the, the state-run elements of employment services. And this of course is occurring at the same moment as the great assault begins on the uh, industrial relations system in its entirety. And at that point, uh, I'd say much of the, the destructive work of the neoliberal makeover is effectively accomplished during the time that uh, Hawke and then Keating are Prime Ministers. What's left for the coalition government when uh, Howard comes into office in 97 is really some tidying up, 
there's some pushes and pulls to try and get uh, more work being done. Meanwhile, at the state level, of course, you've got massive privatisation because much of the stuff that's going to get flogged off, re-engineered, is in the hands of the state government, so you start selling off state banks and utilities and energy companies and all the rest of it. So the effect of all this, I think, is uh, to create a, uh, a new kind of order in which the focus, the rhetoric, the vocabulary is couched in terms of the unemployed, their problems, their deficiencies, and what we need to do to do things to them to, to make it somehow stick together. So the, the essence of this is to say that in a sense, though the nature of the economy, the society, the fabric of our community is utterly different by the 1990s to what it was like in colonial Australia back in the 1870s, for example, or even <coughs> Australia in the 1920s. There is a continuous logic, a thread, and it's this thread that somehow says, within the terms of what we'll call a moral economy, some people are not deserving. Some people don't have fundamental rights. Some people don't deserve the kind of support that you might think a civilised society would wish everyone to have. And you're going to create an increasingly punitive, discriminatory and stigmatising system. Yeah, well, that's Rob Watts, and he was talking about New Start and uh, why uh, the background to why our system is the way it is. And uh, recently, the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union have been running uh, various uh, um, workshops and uh, skill raising uh, training with uh, people to be advocates for people who are unemployed and. Uh, to negotiate the system that we're in. Now, before the election, the uh, Morrison crew had done an announcement saying that uh, they were going to wrought uh, big, big changes at Centrelink, which is hardly surprising because they're in the process of uh, cutting, shedding a whole lot of employment in the uh, uh, public service and uh, People should be very frightened about this because outsourcing and um, privatising is one element of this government's one-trick pony. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the other thing is that big business growth in uh, supplying uh, AI, artificial intelligence methodology, using uh, uh computerized systems is another and it's a whole process of uh, demoralizing and undermining uh, the um, well you'd have to say the majority of people in our society but uh, Virginia Eubanks came uh, to the country and did a discussion around uh, the uh, use of uh, AI in social security processes that are in America and uh, this is uh, adds on there's a, I've got a couple of clips here that uh, remi- I would like to remind people of what's coming with uh, the Morrison government's policies in regards to Centrelink um, imported from uh, England uh, which was our version of the workhouse uh, it's called the county poorhouse and this was basically a brick and mortar institution 
for um, more or less incarcerating people who asked for support from public funds. So they were strictly voluntary in the sense that homeless shelters are strictly voluntary, although you could be sentenced to the poorhouse for crimes like vagrancy, having nowhere to live, begging, asking for help, or prostitution, which at the time meant having sex while not being married. Um, so you could get sentenced to the poorhouse, but for folks who volu voluntarily entered, um, they, it was not an easy decision. So uh, it was 1819, so not everybody had these rights. But if you had the right to vote and hold office, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You couldn't marry when you were in the poorhouse. You were often separated from your children because it was understood that poor and working class children could be redeemed. Um, by having more contact with richer families, and by contact they generally meant uh, labor uh, as domestic or agricultural workers. Um, and some of these institutions, one of the most notorious being Tewksbury in Massachusetts, had death rates as high as 30% a year. So um, a third, basically a third of people entering died um, every year. So the reason that I use this as sort of the origin story I tell about the digital poorhouse is because it's a moment that the United States made two really important decisions. The first was that the, the first and most important thing our social service system could do is a kind of moral diagnosis, deciding who deserves help and who doesn't, who's deserving and who is undeserving, rather than, say, building a system that created a universal floor under everyone. And the second um, thing we decided at that moment was that it was acceptable and appropriate to ask people to give up one of their basic human rights for another, right? So their right to their children or their right to vote for their right to things like food and shelter. And this is what I think of as sort of the deep social programming that underlies the new tools that we're seeing in social services. Um, if for the sort of techies in the, in the room, that would be the legacy program programming on which the rest of the tool is built. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this system is the designers of the system will say that one of the reasons they built it um, is to identify and intervene, and intervene in racial disproportionality in the system. And that just means in the United States, 47 of 50 states um, pull um, black, biracial, and Native American children out of their families and put them into foster care at rates that far exceed uh, their proportion in the population. So that's known as racial disproportionality. It's a problem in Allegheny County like it is everywhere else. So the designers of the system say, we don't know that this system necessarily will solve racial disproportionality, but be we believe with better data we can identify discriminatory decision making in the system and we can step in. Now what's really interesting is that the county's own data shows that intake screening, the point at which this tool is aimed, is not actually the place where racial disproportionality is entering the system. It actually enters at what's known as call referral, which is when people call on families to these hotlines or report them through mandated reporting processes. So in Allegheny County, black and biracial families are 350% more likely to be reported to child welfare services by the community. Once those cases get in the system, there is a little bit of disproportionality that's added at call screening. So call screeners screen in 69% of cases around black and biracial children and only 65% of cases around white children. But that's a 4% difference versus a 350% difference. And I think that's something that's really interesting around these systems and it, it behooves us to pay really close attention 
when designers of these tools talk about them as tools for increasing racial equity. I think we should be really cautious um, when um, folks start making those arguments. Because what I saw in Allegheny County was a very sophisticated tool, um, a very resource intensive and sophisticated tool aimed at the place where the problem wasn't happening. And at worst, it could actually remove some human discretion from the front line of that system, these intake call screeners, who are, by the way, the most racially diverse, the most working class, and the most female part of their workforce. Um, and uh, removing their discretion could very much create actually amplification of the kind of discrimination that's entering the system at call um, referral. So one of the questions I, I try to leave people with in the book is um, to say we shouldn't be asking discretion yes or no, we should be asking discretion who? Because I have this very smart um, political science friend named Joe Sauce, um, and he said discretion is like energy, it can never be created or destroyed, it's only ever moved. So in this case, they're actually moving the discretion from the front line of their workers and giving it to the economists and data scientists and computer programmers who are developing the system. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662 3744. The new international bookshop, a 3CR supporter. It's not too late. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. That's right. Help Solidarity Breakfast reach its target. That's it for today. Marcus, how are you? How are you going? A good, good day. Yeah, it's been good a morning. good day. Been a good program. So we heard from Don Sutherland earlier, was it talking yeah. about the proposed legislation? Then we heard from uh, Melanie Coombs uh, from the Australian Workers Union, from the hairstylist division, talking about their fight to protect uh, penalty rates and the campaign to have that trade recognised. Of course, we heard from uh, Kevin Healy of the uh, the week that was. That's right, and a little bit from Rob Watts reminding you about the Fair Go for Pensioners uh, upcoming conference on uh, July the 10th. Don't forget the uh, CFMEU uh, pull-up, the Concrete Gang pull-up. It's on July the 8th down in Port Melbourne. We're going to sign off with a uh, nice song, a nice song from M- Mia Dyson, Sweet Struggle. Coming up next is... That that will prepare you for the next program, which is Asia Pacific Currents. We're signing off. Adios.
Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station and you're part of the family. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can keep our broadcasts alive. It's easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au slash donate. Your support really matters. Only you can power radical podcasts for another year. For more information and hours of great radio, go to 3cr.org.au.